on textbook producer Ming-Wei Cyprian Fasquel grew up in China watching American movies about pirates. When I first started to take an interest in pirates, I actually had no understanding of politics at any meaningful level. I was probably 12 or 13 before I even knew what a Democrat or Republican was, much less a socialist. But by that age, I was already enamored with the romantic portrayals of pirates. It's easy to forget that pirates were actually real people, because we usually think of them as caricatures, lovable villains who are chaotic, cruel, and unbound by any ideals. But Ming-Wei became curious to know if any of that was actually true, so he went to the library and found plenty of historical information about the golden age of piracy. Most people think pirates are bloodthirsty, super, super greedy, and immoral people who love to see the world burn as they plunder. I seem to find that very few descriptions in popular pirate media are actually true to how they actually lived. And they they had a, a much stronger set of morals than most people give them credit for. They were quite egalitarian, very egalitarian for their time, actually. And so that only added to my interest of pirates. Mingwei found the writing of Marcus Redeker, a professor of history who thinks that pirates have been unfairly maligned. Redeker says that the golden age of piracy was actually a period of idealism. That made Mingwei wonder if they could teach us something about modern resistance to corrupt authority. Pirates lived fearlessly outside of the system, and they flew their flags in the faces of those who previously oppressed them to show them, here I am, I am free. And so I would say it's very much a, a denial of their born circumstances and the embrace of something completely different, however fleeting it may be. And so in that, in that way, I do think we have a lot to learn from them in terms of an ethical code. After the break, Ningwei Cyprian Faskel interviews Marcus Redeker on his book, Villains of All Nations. I'm Gabe Hostin, and this is Untextbooked. Untextbooked. Hi, good morning. Morning. So I wanted to ask you, how did you get into specializing in this era of history? Well, I went away to graduate school in 1976 uh, after having been influenced by a variety of social movements, uh, civil rights movement, uh, black power movement, the uh, student movement, the movement against the war in Vietnam. And as part of all that, uh, my generation wanted what we called history from below, meaning the history of ordinary working people who are usually left out of the nationalist histories of the past. Uh, So when I got to graduate school, I actually had originally planned to study slavery, but I wanted to find a a research topic in which there would be a lot of documentation about people, poor working people, um, and lo and behold, I stumbled onto pirates. 
who were just ordinary working sailors who had crossed the line into illegal activity. Uh, and they caused such a furor in the early 18th century, there is a huge amount of documentation about them, including a lot of trial records, newspaper articles, correspondence of merchants. So it ended up being a very rich body of evidence to work with. Uh, and uh, I then became almost by accident a maritime historian, but I did manage to work my way back around to slavery and have written several books on that. Uh, more recently. So that's how I got in. And in a way, it, it does have something to do with the allure of piracy and this kind of shining place they have in popular culture. They are romantic outlaws. And so I wanted to find out who were they? What did they think of what they were doing? How did they understand uh, their lives as pirates? And so that's why I uh, ended up writing this book, Villains of All Nations, which is a history of uh, one generation of pirates from the 17-teens and 1720s, uh, and a history from below, in the sense that it concentrates on the rank-and-file pirates and what they experienced. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I guess, I guess we can start with misconceptions about pirates and what, what their life actually was like, because um, solidarity is a, is a big part of it. Right. Do you think it was something that all people of the proletariat or working class shared? It, it varied very much by occupation. One of the things that was really important among sailors was that their jobs in, in the 18th century now, we're going back to the 18th century in a time when these small, brittle wooden vessels are being sailed thousands of miles around the world. Uh, the captains in those days were quite brutal. They flogged their sailors. They, they really were quite uh, uh, despotic. But in that environment in which every day of your working life, you are at risk. You put your life into the hands of your fellow workers. Uh, you need to work together in order to survive. That kind of occupation really does breed a very strong solidarity. And sailors were known for this. Another group, uh, very similar, coal miners. Coal miners are known very much for their strong solidarity. Uh, so, so this is one of the things that developed, uh, I think, at sea. And it's not surprising that uh, sailors called each other brother sailor. You know, it's that idea of fictive kinship, that we really are kin, you know, uh, one hand for yourself and one hand for the ship when you're up aloft uh, and you depend on everybody else. So uh, they, they understood that their lives were difficult, but that at the same time, their labor enriched a lot of people, especially wealthy merchants who owned the ships and, sh and, and on those ships carried uh, sugar, tobacco, rice, textiles, from one part of the globe to another, it was really the sailors' work that knitted the global economy together. Uh, in that context, these pirates, the people who decided to, to turn pirate, thought, we make great wealth for other people, but we have nothing. Our food is terrible. The quality of food on ships was awful. Uh, their wages were chronically low. The discipline they suffered was really fierce and violent. And the people who became pirates basically said, enough, we're not going to take that anymore. 
we're going to capture these ships and we're going to organize them as we wish. So this is a, is a very important part of the story of piracy in the sense that pirates were very politically conscious. And what is most fascinating about pirates of this generation of the 17-teens and 1720s is that they were extremely democratic. They elected their captains. They elected uh, an officer called the quartermaster, whose main job was to keep the captain from abusing his power. It was like a dual executive where one watches over the other, like a tribune or something. Um, they divided up their loot in very uh, egalitarian ways. So, so this to me is really fascinating. When these common sailors, and that's what they all were, decided to become pirates and left behind the world of the Royal Navy and merchant shipping, how did they organize their ships? And they did it in a very different way, which I think allows us some deep insight into who these people were and what they hoped for in their own lives. On that, I, I always wondered, because for this era, it was 1713, or roughly about there, right after the War of Succession, that they started to turn pirate, right? And take over their own ships. And now we're revealing that they had their own code of ethics and laws. But my question always was, were they standardized? Was there a way they could I mean, they didn't have the internet back then, right? They couldn't just say, oh, I'm going to print out this pirate code of ethics and then everybody sign it, right? Was, was there a way it got around or was it uh, case by case by, by ship? Yes, I, I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, I do think that the, the code that the pirates lived by was an expression of the values of the lower deck of ships, the common sailors who worked there. And there were three primary values that those common sailors had. One was a commitment to equality. One was a commitment to oppose unjust authority. And the other was the idea of we are a collective. And what you find is that those values were basically institutionalized on board the pirate ship. Uh, but but there is a fa it is a fascinating question to ask. How did all these different ships, there were probably between 80 and 100 of them, come to operate under very similar principles? They weren't identical, but they were very, very similar. And there, there are two ways that we can understand that. First of all, uh, pirates did, in a very real way, create their own constitution. Every ship, or most every ship, maybe not all, but most every ship, had what they called articles, written articles in which it clearly specified how this ship is going to run, how you're going to divide up the loot, how you're going to elect the captain, what kind of authority the captain has. All these things were written out. So, so you could say there, is, there was a document at the heart of each uh, ship's social order. But how do you circulate that document? Well, what I found was that the way pirate ships multiplied was the key to understanding that because most people did not become pirates by mutiny, you know, where you rise up and capture your ship. There were some really dramatic examples of that, but probably 80% of people who became pirates did so by joining up when pirates captured their vessel. 
So a pirate ship would come alongside a merchant ship and run up the Jolly Roger, the black flag with skull and crossbones, and almost always that vessel would surrender. Uh, if you didn't surrender, it was going to be bad for you because the pirate ships were faster, they had more weapons, uh, the sailors were really skilled. They were going to capture you sooner or later. It would be better for you just to give up. And that's what almost all merchant ship captains did. But when they were on board that ship, when the pirates sent a boarding party onto the prize ship, one of the things they always did, even before they started taking the loot, was to call the common sailors up on deck and enact a ritual they called the distribution of justice. And by that they meant, they would simply ask a question, how does your captain treat you? Now these were all, these pirates were all people who had been common sailors themselves, so they knew that captains were pretty rough characters. And if that group of sailors said, uh, our captain uh, treats us very badly, then that captain was in real trouble. The pirates would sometimes flog the captain the way the captain had flogged his sailors. If, on the other hand, they said, our captain is a good man and he treats us well, they might just let that captain go and not take anything from him and try to send a message to other captains. But in those instances where the captain was punished by the pirates, they would also say, would any of you sailors on this prize ship like to join us? And lots of sailors did. I mean, if you spoke badly against your captain, you better get off that ship and go with those pirates, right? Because the captain is going to let you have it. So this was their main recruiting uh, mechanism, people joining up from captured ships. What that meant was that pirate ships got crowded. So what would happen then is the next time the pirates would capture a prize vessel, they would just take the vessel and put half their pirates on board and set up a new pirate ship, the people who set up the new ship took the articles with them or took the knowledge of the articles with them, and then they had to go through that process uh, all over again. So it's by the sort of rapid division of pirate crews that the pirate culture was disseminated. How do they sort out the on-ship dynamic? Because I remember reading that they had special ways to deal with conflicts or with the head guests on board, they had special ways to deal with them as well? Well, you can imagine that 80 men on a crowded ship would lead to conflict. And pirates were very conscious of this, so they developed ways of trying to contain it. For example, when two pirates got into a fight on board the ship, everybody would force them to stop fighting. And as soon as they came to an area where the ship would dock, those two pirates would go ashore and fight a duel. First with guns, and guns weren't very accurate back then, so it's quite likely that they were going to miss. Uh, and sometimes with knives if they failed. But uh, the goal, by the way, was not necessarily to kill your fellow pirate, but just to wound him so that he would have to bear the mark of that defeat for the rest of his days. So what this successfully did was it helped to take conflict off the ship. The other thing they did was that when a pirate crew went into port to sort of uh, live it up after a successful voyage, they had a rule that you couldn't bring any money with you back to sea. 
you had to spend all your money while you were in port. Now, partly that was just to have a good time. But another reason was that if you brought money to sea, people would start gambling and then they would start fighting. So they limited the, the use of money on board the ship uh, and tried to confine it to the times when they were on shore. So keeping this social order working, when you've got a bunch of really, you know, in many cases, hyper-masculine men who are trained fighters and ready to fight at the drop of a hat, regulating that became one of the big issues for uh, a successful pirate ship. Wow. And I take it very few of them um, put their money into any early versions of banks or investments. You know, this is kind of fascinating. One of the myths about pirates is uh, buried treasure. And I still get phone calls from history buffs who are treasure hunters, and they always want to know, hey, did you find any secret maps uh, when you did all this research on pirates? And, and if they ask me that question, I know they didn't read my book because in the book I say pirates didn't bury their treasure. They didn't have this attitude that they were saving up for something else. Their, their ideal was to go into port and spend it you know, let us live while we can, is what one pirate said. Or another a favorite phrase among pirates was, a merry life and a short one. They knew they were being hunted down by the great imperial powers. They knew there was a good chance they were going to end up being hanged. But they said, let us live while we can. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That, that last quote actually comes up even nowadays, really. Some people, I think... Recently, I guess in the 20th century, there was that, I think it was George Strait, his song that goes, uh, I'm here for a good time, not a long time. And that was actually borrowed by more recently a, I don't know if you're familiar with hip hop, but there's a rapper named Drake and he uses that line. That's right. Quite a lot. Yeah. Well, and the situation is not so different. I mean, the likelihood of dying young working at sea in the 18th century and dying young in a poor urban neighborhood, uh, they're great. Those are, those, are, those are serious, serious problems. And a kind of, what, what's fascinating to me is that a kind of uh, ethos develops in that situation, but also a kind of toughness and a kind of defiance, uh, which of course you hear in a lot of hip hop music. But one form it took among pirates was that when they were captured and hanged, they would frequently use the hanging where, you know, literally the whole town would come out to see it. Uh, a hanging was a very popular event in the 18th century. And pirates would be allowed to sort of give their last words. And they would say things like, uh, damnation to the governor and confusion to the colony. You know, to hell with all of you. We don't care. We know that poor people can't have justice. They said that very frequently. Uh, so, so there's a kind of defiance and also a kind of gallows humor. You know, the idea is that you look death in the eye and you don't blink and you just keep going. Would you say that some of them through this achieved some sort of martyrdom? Well, I think they did in a, in a, in a weird sort of way because what happens is that the, the tales of these pirates really uh, last for a very long time down to the present. Now, they've lasted in several different ways. Uh, in the era of the early 18th century, 
when someone, say a sailor, goes to see the execution of the member of a, let's say, a member of the crew of Black Bart Roberts, uh, and that person stands up and says, you know, damnation to the governor, that sailor is going to tell that story for the rest of his life to his fellow sailors on the lower deck about how even on the gallows, these pirates stood up to those rich men and royal officials. So there's a kind of storytelling continuity. So I think it's uh, it's a really important point that these stories continue to have a great deal of power and continue to inspire people even today. I always say, you know, pirates were eradicated uh, by around 1726. There were a few of them left, but mass hangings all around the Atlantic. Uh, so they lost the battle. The pirates lost the battle, but they won the war in the sense that we remember them today as kind of romantic outlaws, but we don't remember the people who hanged them. Yeah, I really wanted to talk about their relationship with the slave trade. In the 17-teens and 20s, these pirates captured literally thousands of vessels and created a major crisis in the Atlantic trading system. And one of the places where that was most seriously felt was on the west coast of Africa. Now, one reason pirates went to the west coast of Africa was because they wanted to capture slave ships, not slave ships that had already been loaded with enslaved people, but empty slave ships, which they thought worked very well as pirate ships. One reason pirates wanted these kinds of ships is they had a very large lower deck, which meant you could accommodate uh, a very large crew, a crew who could use the guns and the cannon and, and fight. Uh, a second reason is because slave ships were frequently equipped with a lot of food for long voyages, which pirates made. Now, pirates did not, for the most part, want to capture ships that had enslaved people on them. They did occasionally. And there was one group of pirates active in the Indian Ocean. The, the Indian Ocean pirates, some of them in Madagascar, were actually slave traders. So that, that's very important to say. But the Atlantic pirates, uh, not nearly so much. And it is absolutely true that escaped slaves do turn up as full-fledged members of pirate crews. Now, there's an interesting question there. Uh, why would pirates who were mostly European, although multi-ethnic, Irish, French, Dutch, English, why would they take runaway Africans uh, on board their ships? Well, one of the things you wanted, if you're a pirate, you want people who are going to be committed to your cause. You want people who are going to be willing to fight. It turns out that a lot of people who had escaped slavery had a very strong motivation not to go back. So they would fight to the bitter end. And uh, so they were very uh, reliable in that sense. Another thing is that a lot of Africans who ended up on New World plantations had very serious military skills. They were really good fighters. Many of them had been warriors. So this was another thing that pirates uh, respected. I mean, you want people on your ship who really know how to fight. So it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely established that a very significant portion of almost all pirate crews in the Atlantic were made up of uh, people of African descent. These were very mixed racial, multi-ethnic, uh, motley crews, you might say. And 
Am I right to think that part of the, I guess, the mounting pressure against pirates was not only by governments, but also by essentially early forms of, I want to say, lobbying groups that belong to the slave trade? Absolutely. Uh, the slave traders uh, in London actually sent petitions to Parliament saying that the pirates are really disrupting this uh, lucrative and valuable trade, which is essential to all of His Majesty's plantations in Barbados and Jamaica and South Carolina and Virginia. And they were right about that. It was very disruptive. And so that was when they actually persuaded the British government to send uh, uh, the squadron uh, after Bartholomew Roberts and his crew. So, so that's part of it. But, but here I would, I would note one thing. It is true that pirates uh, attacked the private property of merchants, that they uh, caused this crisis in the Atlantic trading system, and that alone would have been enough for a campaign to hang as many of them as possible. That would have been enough. But the other thing that motivated uh, their enemies, the pirates' enemies, was the way they ran their ships, which we discussed earlier. Uh, to present an alternative to the way, to the violent way, uh, the violent and exploitative way that naval and merchant ships were being run, to present a subversive example, that was something that the authorities wanted to stamp out. They didn't want common sailors to think that there was any other social world that was possible. So we need to keep in mind uh, not just the economic side of things, but the social uh, and the way in which the, the way pirates organized themselves also brought the wrath of the state down on their heads. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting thought, because while I was reading and I was noticing these little dynamics in between groups that actually looked very familiar to certain situations we have today, uh, large governments putting pressure on foreign powers that have different systems of government that could work until you squash them, right? And so I was wondering whether you thought there were any modern equivalents to either the establishment at that time or pirates today. I think there, there are examples all over the world. There are everywhere uh, poor people who are who are basically pushed down by the circumstances of their lives, who are actively dreaming of something different. You know, whether it's uh, returning to the land that's been taken away from them or returning to a better, more self-sufficient life. I think the kinds of dreams that we see institutionalized on a pirate ship are fairly common throughout the world. It's just that we can't usually see them because of the oppressive weight of circumstances. Uh, and it is also uh, true that when, uh, let's say, small countries uh, rise up and gain their independence, there are frequently imperial powers who want to subject them in new ways. Uh, I would use the example of Haiti. Uh, in 1791, a colony, a French colony, a really lucrative French colony uh, of 500,000 enslaved Africans rose up, defeated the French army and navy, defeated the British and the Spanish who tried to come in and capture this colony because it was so valuable in terms of its production of sugar, 
and then defeated France yet again and finally became the second independent nation in the Western Hemisphere. But then after Haiti did that, France and the United States combined to try to limit the spread of the revolutionary ideas that appeared in Haiti, thinking that they would spread to other colonies and, and to the southern United States, and thereby essentially crushed this poor country. Uh, uh, France required Haiti to pay reparations to slave owners, uh, uh, you know, many billions of dollars. When a country does rise up and achieve a certain amount of freedom, there will be an effort to limit that by the powers that be. I suppose back then, uh, the, the Atlantic trade was probably one of the primary economic vessels, so to speak, of, of that time. And so actually only yesterday, this comparison came to me that pirates today, they manifest in, I would say, hackers a little bit in the sense that a lot of these hackers used to be IT people for large companies. And then they slowly move away from that, looking at all the money they're bringing in as engineers, essentially taking some from themselves, if not just standing as a symbol of rebellion. And I wanted to know your thoughts on modern groups that, that took this stance. It, it's really a, a good comparison. There are always within dominant industries, subcultures of protest and dissent. People who have been turned off by the way things work. Uh, people who have uh, grudges, people who simply have a critique of the way in which the economy is working uh, and it's whether it's just or not. So, so I do think that you will find uh, pockets of rebels in almost every industry. And I would even add, you know, piracy still goes on. Now, it's not the, the sort of thing it was in the 18th century. It's much more localistic and sporadic. Although a few years ago, you may recall, we had quite an outburst of piracy in Somalia off the Somalian coast. And uh, I used to get these uh, calls from journalists all the time. And, and frequently the question they would ask is, so the, the, the ultimate message was, tell us that these pirates are not like the romantic outlaws that we knew about from the golden age of piracy. And I would basically say, no, they're exactly like them. They're poor people whose uh, lives have been damaged in some cases by European overfishing off their traditional waters, in some cases by the dumping of waste by European countries. Uh, and these are poor people who, when they see a rich ship go by, they try to attack it. So, so these kinds of things are not uncommon in a world of such vast inequality. Pirates, I can tell you, basically thought, we don't have to obey the laws that rich men make for their own protection. So, so I think it's... Uh, this matter of, of what's, what's law is not always what's just. And I think uh, history from below can teach you that lesson in a lot of different ways. So I guess we are coming to an end. And my last question for you is if there, is, if there are one or two lessons to take away from pirates, what they stood for, what they stood against, what would you say those are? Well, I've been thinking for many years about why pirates are so popular. 
I mean, the pirate in popular culture is just extraordinary. You know, I, I first published an article about pirates in 1981, and the phone has never stopped ringing. The people just can't get enough of these uh, outlaws at sea. For a while, I started telling people, uh, I'm not going to talk about pirates anymore. I, I, my idea in writing Villains of All Nations was, okay, here's everything I know about pirates. I'm going to put it in this book, and you just go read the book. And for a long time, I, that's what I said to people when they would contact me. I'd say, no, I can't keep doing this. But you know what? They wore me down. I, I, I just can't stop talking about them. I, it's, it's impossible. They're just too interesting. And people recognized that they were rebels, that they stood up against uh, the injustices of their time. They stood up against oppression. They gathered up all their freedom, their courage, and, and they went out and they created a different world. And I think this is one of the things that makes pirates uh, so attractive to us, especially in our regimented lives, when we see these people who basically uh, created something brand new for themselves. And I think as long as there are injustices anywhere, people are going to find pirates to be a very compelling kind of figure. Yes, I, I couldn't agree more. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Redeker. It was an honor to have you here. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. And uh, uh, I wish, I know you're uh, beginning your university studies. I want to wish you all the best in that. Uh, and I hope you'll keep doing research on pirates. Dr. Marcus Redeker is professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. He's the author of Villains of All Nations. Mingwei Cyprian Faskell is a filmmaker and a freshman at Stanford University. Our music is by Silas Bowen and Coleman Hamilton, who are a senior and recent graduate of Walnut Hill School for the Arts in Massachusetts. Untextbook is edited by Bethany Denton and Jeff Edman. Fernando Rain sings us sea shanties while we row. Our website is untextbook.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at untextbook. That's where you'll find more stories from the present and the past that shouldn't be overlooked. We've been working on this series for months. We spent our summer reading and researching and learning about the world. It took a lot of work behind the scenes, and we need to pay the people that helped it happen. Go to untextbook.com, click support. Untextbook is a project of Got History, an organization that believes in a world where all young people can advance civic well-being for themselves, society, and the planet.